Good morning. You may have taken notice in your bulletin that the anthem we just heard uh, was composed and presented the first time when I arrived here as your pastor five years ago. I wanted to say a special word of thanks to the Knox Choir and to Mark for playing the oboe so beautifully. I want to say thanks to uh, Christy and Scott who commissioned that piece at the time and who I now know as my neighbors and the owners of the finest uh, tire swing in all of Cincinnati. <laughs> Thank you to all of you. It's uh, a joy and a blessing to be your pastor. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, enliven us with the truth, the mystery, the love of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm in the midst of a sermon series right now. You might have noticed it's called Real World Jesus. I'm telling stories about the Bible with an emphasis about how the characters in those stories are meant to be received as regular people to whom we can relate. This morning, uh, today, is Reformation Sunday. I'm going to start by explaining some of what that means in terms of church history and theology, and then I'm going to move through a couple of Bible stories and talk about them before I finally land in a place that is much more about regular people. I hope you'll stick with me on the way. Today is Reformation Sunday in Protestant churches around the world. Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, Anglicans, Lutherans, many others remember on this last Sunday in October each year that it was now around 500 years ago that some very brave people started to ask tough questions about the church. The church, the powerful institution that controlled every aspect of life throughout Europe at the time, and much of Asia and beyond in a way that was rapidly expanding. You may remember the name Martin Luther and the story of his 95 theses that legend has it were nailed to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Those 95 theses were 95 questions, questions posed to church authorities, and most of them were some version of the question, why are we doing it this way? Luther looked at the traditions of the church alongside the life of Jesus, and when he saw something that looked inconsistent, he sought reform. He asked a question about it. So he asked questions that sounded like, is the church too controlled by money? And he asked questions like, why can't regular people read the Bible in their own language instead of Latin? He asked these kinds of questions even though they put his life in danger because they were questions about power. In many parts of Europe, the same questions were asked by other theologians. We're singing hymns this morning that were written by some of them. John Calvin in Switzerland and John Knox, this congregation's namesake in Scotland, were the two leaders most closely associated with today's Presbyterian Church and a thing we call Reformed Theology, our academic tradition. The Latin motto of our 
tradition is Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda, or in English, Reformed and always reforming, always being reformed according to the Word of God. Reformed and always being reformed. In other words, Christians are not called to be static, stubborn upholders of old traditions. We are not supposed to be stuck in our old ways. And on the other hand, it is also true that faith does not mean chasing every new and exciting trend. Our reformed motto says nothing about innovation. Not that innovation is a bad thing. But what the motto does say is that in all things we are called to be reformed by the word of God. We are to ask ourselves if the way we are doing things is really the way Jesus intended it. And we're supposed to ask that question all the time. Reformation history is a reminder to all of us to take a critical look, not just at our church, but at ourselves, at our own perspectives, our own points of view, and ask if we have blind spots where we have lost sight of God's purpose for us. Blind spots. The scripture we read this morning is about a man with blind spots in his life. It's a story about the need to discover our own blind spots. And to get into it, I want to talk about the picture I placed in your bulletin today. Go ahead and take that out and take a look at it if you haven't yet. This picture is actually from the story we read a couple of weeks ago. This is Rembrandt's painting of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. For those of you who missed that Sunday, the rich fool is the story of a man whose crops produce beyond his wildest imagination. He makes plans to relax and enjoy his good fortune, only to find that he is a fool, for he dies that very night. This is that man, says Rembrandt. This is that man. It's nighttime, and by candlelight, he closely examines his money. He is totally absorbed by the coin he holds in his hand, and he is therefore oblivious to what we can see as we look at him. We can see that he's sad, pitiful even, for he, he sits comfortably surrounded by his wealth, but we can tell that he is neither comfortable nor is he surrounded. This man is clearly anxious and overly absorbed with this one coin, one of thousands that he has. And all the same, he is still afraid he's going to lose it. This coin, this coin that will mean nothing, perhaps moments from now, when the massive heart attack comes that will take his life. He is surrounded by his stuff. But we can clearly see that he is not really surrounded, at least not by anything that can love him back. No, he is alone. He is alone. 
He sits by himself in the darkness, no friends, no community to join him in enjoying all he has. And all he can see is his coin. To the more important things of the world beyond that small ring of candlelight, he is blind. Today's story is a similar tale, The Rich Man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who dressed in fine clothes and feasted on fine food. At the rich man's gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing even for the scraps from the rich man's table. Both men die. Lazarus is carried away to be comforted by angels in the afterlife. The rich man who is being tormented in Hades calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. And Abraham responds that nothing can be done. The rich man received his good things on earth while Lazarus suffered. Now the tables are turned and a great chasm separates them. A great chasm. It is a powerful story with a graphic description as strong as the Rembrandt painting. And Jesus sprinkles in details that expand the meaning of the story for us. This is a parable. It's a story that Jesus makes up in order to make a point. Jesus tells a lot of parables, many. And Lazarus is the only character in any of the parables who has ever given a name. The rich man, by contrast, is just a rich man. And while Lazarus longed for help in his early, earthly suffering, there's never any idea that he badgered the rich man about it. But the rich man still expects for Lazarus to help him in the afterlife. So accustomed is the rich man to being served by other people. The biases of this story are crystal clear. And it's tempting to receive the story as a simple message about bad news for the rich and good news for the poor. But as usual, Luke is more clever than that in telling the story. Toward the end, the last few verses, the rich man brings up his five brothers still on earth to remind us that it's not too late to try to discover our blind spots. The parable is meant to remind listeners, people like us, that most of us are probably not so much like the rich man or so much like Lazarus. More likely, we are connected to those five brothers. We are like them. We have before us warnings from Moses and the prophets in our Bible, warnings about justice and mercy And we have the good news of one who rose from the dead. That's an obvious reference in this story to the resurrection of Jesus. The challenge we have is to pay attention 
to discover our blind spots and to do something, we have a chance not to be so blind. Luke is additionally clever and nuanced in what he leaves out of his story, his description of the rich man. While we know that the rich man lived comfortably in earthly life, there is no evidence of direct communication between the rich man and Lazarus. So, being fair, we cannot accuse the rich man of being evil or of any intentional abuse of Lazarus. He does not ridicule him or actively refuse him food. He does not sponsor legislation to have Lazarus removed from the gate of his home. From what we can tell, the rich man's folly is his blind spot. You see, Lazarus sits right at his gate. And the rich man seems to have no idea at all that another human being is there. Just like Rembrandt's rich fool, he is so consumed with attending to his own comfort that he is blind to the suffering of others. The reason I'm talking so much about this Rembrandt painting is because it reminds us of the blindness and isolation that are the risk of wealth. I don't do hellfire and brimstone preaching, and I don't think the point of this story is to elicit fear about burning in eternity with the rich man. However, the sadness and isolation of Rembrandt's rich fool is something real. And we see this all around us. My friend Sean Barkley is the pastor up at Crestview Presbyterian out in Westchester. He frequently references in our conversations the lonely and isolated lives being lived by people in his community, people who appear to be in very comfortable circumstances. Thanks to help from TV and movies and other forms of media, the American suburbs have become a convenient metaphor for talking about loneliness and isolation masked by affluence. But you don't have to go to Westchester or Mason to find that kind of sadness. It's evident here in Hyde Park and throughout our affluent communities. The symptoms are anxiety and depression, high rates of suicide, overuse of alcohol and prescription drugs, and of course there is over-reliance on shopping. Retail therapy, we call it. Some of us live way beyond our means, buried in debt. Others of us may have plenty of money to spend on stuff, but we just don't realize what a waste of time it is to try to find our peace and fulfillment in that way. These are our modern ways of being too focused on our coin and blind to the real happiness if we would lift up our heads. 
Look again at the painting. Take a close look. Can you imagine this rich fool? Or the man in the story of Lazarus? Can you imagine that man might be sitting in a house just down the road in Hyde Park tonight? There he is, turning a coin over in his hand, or or, or maybe it's a, a bank statement. Maybe he holds an iPad. Maybe he's searching online for the perfect luxury watch or a more expensive but slightly lighter bicycle or thinking about buying a boat. Sometimes he puts the iPad down and he wonders why he can't get to sleep. Wonders why he feels so disconnected to, from other people. Wonders why no one calls, why there isn't more joy in his life. Imagining him, we are sad. We pity him for continuing to try to fill that hole in his life with something he can buy. And the answer is not found down in his hands where he is looking. It's only found by looking up. By seeing what he has ignored, his his blind spot. He wants to know his life is connected to the lives of other people. He wants to see the ways he could use the many gifts and skills he has, the things he has amassed over his life to make a real difference in the life of somebody else. That's what this story of the rich man and Lazarus is about. You see, it's it's not an indictment against having money, nor is it meant to induce shame or guilt meant to save us from loneliness, from being blinded to the real richness of other people because we are too consumed by money to see anything else. This is one of the dangerous byproducts that can result from wealth. I began to tell you, or by telling you, that this is Reformation Sunday, that we are people who are reformed and always being reformed by our faith. We have a rich history of having asked difficult questions in church as much as 500 years ago, and still today I am convinced Presbyterians come to church to talk about real, regular things, to talk about things that are challenging because life is a challenge. I thought about telling a fancy story about one of the Protestant reformers to close this sermon. Instead, I'm going to tell this story. A woman named Emily tells a story about a time she got in an argument with her husband. They made up, and afterward they went out together to run some errands and stopped at CVS. Emily was still feeling teary and worn out from the fight. As they were checking out, the clerk behind the register asked about their family, asked if they had kids, where they lived, and so on. 
At the end of their little conversation, he smiled at them and he said, You know, you two, you two are really good together. It was what she needed to hear at that moment. It was so compassionate and loving. It was, she said, an expression of grace. An expression of grace. Grace is the idea that there is nothing you can do to earn God's love. Nothing. No amount of prayer, no act of service, no amount of perfect success in your job or in your marriage, no amount of money you can give to the church or anyone else to earn God's love. Because God loves you already. Grace is what the Protestant reformers risked their lives to talk about. I think it's important to represent grace not always in dramatic stories about famous people, but in simple ones like the story I just told. Because most of us are not quite the rich man, completely oblivious to the needs of the world, nor are we destitute like Lazarus. Many more of us are like the couple in the simple story I just told, or we are like the five brothers in this story of Lazarus. We are regular people in the world. And we need reminders now and again of the grace that already exists in our lives and the need to lift up our heads and see it. Often we receive that grace by lifting our eyes to see another ordinary person to whom we might have been blind. A neighbor. A student who needs a tutor. A single parent who needs a break. The grace-filled clerk working at CVS. None of them are sitting home at night counting their money. And yet God loves them. And God puts them in our lives if we will look because God loves us too. And they are often the ones who will show us God's grace if we lift up our heads and see them. Amen.